You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. It is. <clears throat> Gosh, I'm not even sure a sermon is necessary today. Was that not so good? Man, we just are so fortunate to have men and women who love Jesus and want to bring that out to us through song. Gosh, that was just so good. So good. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there, gosh, I just love all church gatherings, don't you? When we get together with our entire church family, um, worship Jesus together, learn together, grow together. I just love. These days are so, they are so refreshing uh, to me. So I just thank God for a morning like this. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And it would be helpful if you had that out and open on your lap there. Romans chapter 8. Okay, so if you've been with us over the last several months, um, this is our 13th Sunday in Romans 8. We have just gone verse by verse through this chapter. And we have spent the last 12 chapters in verses 1 through 30. Verses 1 through 30. Now, I don't know what it's felt like for you as you've just kind of studied and prayed along and listened along and sought to apply Romans uh, chapter 8 to your heart thus far. But I'll tell you what it's felt like to me preaching it. And I hope this this has been the way you have felt about Romans 8. Um, If I were putting it in a metaphor, it has felt like God has opened up his vault for us. And God has welcomed us into his vault through Romans 8. And he's welcomed us and he said, come on in and see what's inside this vault. And inside this vault, we have just seen one precious promise from God after another. Just one after another. And God has invited us to to look around and see these precious promises. But then he says, "Don't, don't just look around and see them. I want you to grab them and I want you to hold them. I want you to be convinced that these things are actually your promises. And then he's saying that don't just look around and see them and don't just hold them. I want you to actually live in light of these things. I I want you to know that these things are yours. You can possess these things. I've given these things for you to live with and to live by. Now just think about what we have covered in Romans uh, chapter eight, the first 30 verses. You know, uh, the first verse starts out with just one of the most precious promises in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about what Paul is writing that from. That's coming out of of Romans chapter seven where Paul has felt the weight and the ugliness and nastiness of his sin. And then he writes that promise of Romans 8, 1 to his own heart, I think primarily and to us just kind of um, after that. But but he's writing that to his own heart. He has felt the weight of his sin. And, And you know what happens when any of us feel the weight of our sin? We begin to carry an innate sort of fear in us that says something like this. There's surely, in light of the ugliness of my sin, there's surely going to be a moment where God looks at me and just kind of washes his hands from me. There's gonna be a moment, I'm gonna sin enough times. I don't know if that's like 9,000 times or 10,000 times or 100,000 times, but I'm gonna sin enough times where God is going to get to the point of just saying enough's enough. I can't stand you anymore. Or I'm gonna sin in a big enough way, a varsity enough way, where finally God is gonna look at me and say, I I just cannot do this with you anymore. Paul is talking about that innate fear that we all carry of, surely we are going to outsend the grace of God at some point in our life. Surely the smile of God is at some point going to turn into a frown. Surely that's going to happen. And Paul writes verse one to look at all of us and say, that day that you're waiting for is never going to come. 
There's never going to be a moment where you out the grace of God. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment left in God's heart for his sons and daughters. Um, you, you get down later in the chapter and Paul reminds us of God's precious gift to weak, struggling, and failing Christians like you and me. And here's the precious gift, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, if you have the, the English Standard Version, uh, at the top of your chapter, uh, at the top of Romans chapter eight, it says life in the spirit. This is part of what Paul is showing us in Romans eight is the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that God's given us and what the spirit does in our life. Now just listen to what some of what Paul says in Romans eight that the spirit does for us. Verse two, Paul says that he liberates us from the oppressive power of the law. In verse four, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to fulfill the law's righteous requirements, to, to actually live obedient and holy lives before the Lord. In verse nine, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He actually dwells and takes up residence in us. In verse 10, the Holy Spirit gives life to our mortal spirits. In verse 11, the Holy Spirit will one day give life to our mortal bodies. We're gonna get resurrection bodies someday from the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit enables us to kill sin rather than coddle sin. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. In verse 15, the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity as sons and daughters of God. In verse 16, the Holy Spirit enables us to experience this new identity. Not just know that we're sons and daughters of God, but to actually feel deep down in our bones, we really are sons and daughters of God. In verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We covered that a few weeks ago. He helps us in our weakness, even in our weakness of praying. He helps us even there. Um, when you get to verse 17, Paul reminds us of God's precious gift of, of future glory. Paul's talking about what our inheritance is gonna look like as the sons and daughters of God. And that inheritance is so big, it is so vast that Paul has to, to lift it up out of the word inheritance and he uses the word glory to describe it. Paul works for the next eight verses, from verse 17 to verse 25, he works to convince us that what is coming for us, you know, our future is so incredibly bright that it's going to make our worst days now look like one inconvenient night in a bad hotel. That's how great our future is, Paul says. You get to, to verses 28, uh, 29, and 30, it's probably the high peak of the promises of God in Romans 8. Paul looks at us and he says in verse 28, and we know that for all of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God's gonna work all things out for good. Does it get any more reassuring and encouraging than that, right? But he's just un unfolding one precious promise after another. It's God inviting us into the vault so we can put our hands on these precious promises and then live by them. Now, when you get to verse 31, and that's where we are today, when you get to verse 31, it marks a key change in Romans chapter eight. Here's the way you can think about Romans eight. It really comes in two sections of unequal lengths. Uh, the first 30 verses, verse one through 30, Paul is saying, come on into the vault and look at these precious promises. Man, get a sense of all of these great promises that God has given you. Then when you get to verse 31, the last eight verses, verse 31 through 39, Paul says, now respond to those verses. Here's the content. Here are the promises of God. Now you get to do something with those. That's the last eight verses. The first 30 verses are, are the content. Here's the promises. The last eight verses are the response. 
This is how Paul is laying it out. In the first 30 verses, Paul is saying, let me welcome you inside the vault so that you can see all of these dear promises that, that you can see and savor. Just let your soul go there. See and savor these promises. And then in the last eight verses, Paul just invites us. Now you get to sing in response to these promises. Now you get to enjoy these promises. Now you get to live by these promises. This is where Paul is taking us. In the last eight verses, there are six questions that form the last eight verses. Six questions. And it's going to take us the next week or two to get through these six questions. Uh, today, we're going to cover the first two. And the first two questions are both found in verse 31. So we're going to cover two of the six verses today. The first, or two, I'm sorry, two of the six questions today. So here's question number one. You see it in verse 31. Paul has just unlocked 30 verses of gospel promises. Then you get to verse 31, and here's the question that he asks. What then? In light of what we have just seen, what then shall we say to these things? What do we say to these things? What do we do in light of what we have just seen? Let's look at these things and then let's figure out what we're to say about these things. This is where Paul is taking us. Now look at the we there. What then shall we say to these things? Um, if you want to think about the sort of we that is, that is like a, uh, it's like a preaching we. And here's what a preaching we is. It's Paul preaching to us and he's saying, I'm looking at these things, the first 30 verses, I'm looking at these things and my heart is doing something when I look at these things. And now I'm inviting you to join me in allowing Romans 8 to go all the way into your heart and for it to do things in you too. So, so it's that inclusive sort of invitational we. Paul is saying, it's, it's happening to me. These things are doing things to me. It's causing me to respond in certain ways. And I'm inviting you in to responding with me like that. It's that preaching, invitational sort of we. Now embedded into this first question is the invitation to think, to think. So, so just think about what Paul is doing here. He is saying, I want you to take these things, these things encompass everything that he has said in verses one through verse 30. He's saying, I want you to take these things and now I want you to think about these things. I want you to work these things out. I want you to tease these things out. I want you to see where these promises can take you. I want you to take these promises, these things of the first you know, 30 verses, and I want you to bring them to bear on your life. I want you to apply them to your life. Paul's saying, I don't want you to live below your privileges. So think about what your privileges are. Think about what God has promised you and then live in those promises. Bring those promises to bear on your life. Possess those promises. You know, really when I think about this question, I, I think it's really, and, and by the way, it forms kind of the introductory question. So there's, there's six questions. This is the first one. And this first question forms the introduction to the, to the other five. And I think really what Paul is doing in this first question is he is inviting us to preach the gospel to ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves. Now, what does it mean to preach the good news of Jesus to yourself? Here's what that means. Paul is saying, in, in inviting us to preach the gospel to ourselves, he is saying, why don't you rehearse these precious promises of God so that they stay fresh in your forgetful mind? That's what preaching the gospel is. When you're preaching it to yourself, that's what you're doing. You're rehearsing the precious promises of God so that they stay fresh in your forgetful mind. Like part of all of our issue is we just forget the promises of God. And Paul is saying, I want you to rehearse these promises. I want you to think about these promises so that they stay fresh and that you don't forget these promises. 
Now, when it comes to preaching the gospel to yourself, I'm not saying it is the only habit or discipline that a Christian should develop in his or her life. But I am saying that preaching the gospel to yourself is one of the most important habits, one of the most important disciplines that a, that a Christian can develop in their life. And here is why it is so important for us. When you wake up tomorrow, do you know what's going to happen? Life is going to start happening. Life is going to happen to you tomorrow. And do you know when life happens to us, what it does to us? Life has a way of taking hold of our feelings. And when life starts happening to us, it takes hold of our feelings and it starts producing these sort of questions in our feelings. Does God really love me? Like if these things are happening to me, how in the world could God love me? If I just failed and sinned like that, there is no way the grace of God is gonna be good enough for me. There's no way. See, when life starts happening to us, it grabs a hold of our feelings and it twists our feelings into feeling bad things about God, to disbelieving the grace of God. This is what life does to you when you wake up on Monday. It's what it does to me when I wake up on Monday. And this is why preaching the good news of Jesus to ourselves is such an important thing. If we don't do that, life will take our feelings and we will start feeling things that are contrary to the promises of God. I'll never forget one time hearing a guy say, um, just, it's so funny to think about this. He said, you know, when, when you think about it, no one in your life is more influential than you are in your life. And do you know why? Because no one talks to you as much as you talk to you. Now, isn't that a funny thought to think about? No one talks to you as much as you talk to you. When you just think about how we live our life, we are one unending conversation with ourselves, aren't we? Isn't that kind of weird just to admit that you talk to yourself all the time? I mean, that's what we do all the time, every day, every moment. We're, we're an unending conversation. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers in church history, he was a preacher in Britain for, uh, in the last century. He made the comment once, commenting on Psalm 42. He said, have you ever just stopped and thought about this? That most of your problems come because you are listening to yourself, not preaching to yourself. Most of your problems come because life has happened to you. And what life does to us is it takes our feelings and it drags them into unbelief. And he is saying, Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, if you're ever going to learn to fight against that as a Christian, here's what that looks like. It looks like cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways we cooperate with the Holy Spirit is we take the precious promises of God and we figure out what are we gonna say about these promises? How are we gonna to respond to these promises? How, what do we get to believe in light of these promises? I love what J.I. Packer says, commenting on this first question in Romans 8.31. Listen to what he says, talking about the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself, the importance of thinking these things through. He says it like this. He says, here's what Paul is saying. Think of what you know of God through the gospel and apply it. This is what Paul's inviting us into in the first question. Think, he says, against your feelings. Think against your feelings. Do you ever do that? Do you ever find yourself feeling one thing and you know underneath the way you're feeling is all sorts of unbelief, all sorts of just your feelings being drug into just not believing the promises of God? He's saying you have to think against your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom that your feelings have spread. Unmask the unbelief that your feelings have nourished. Take yourself in hand. 
Talk to yourself, preach to yourself. He says, talk to yourself. Make yourself look up from your problem to the God of the gospel. By this means, so Paul believes, so he's saying, Paul, here's what Paul is saying. This is what Paul believes here. By this means, by talking to yourself, by taking yourself at hand, by preaching to yourself, by this means, the indwelling Holy Spirit, whose ministry it is to assure us that we are God's beloved children and heirs, the Holy Spirit will then lead us to the point where Paul's last triumphant inference he goes all the way down and just recites verse 39. I am sure that neither death nor life nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying when we preach the gospel to ourselves, the Holy Spirit will take us all the way to that last triumphant inference of Paul. And he will invoke from us the response, so I am, hallelujah. I really am loved by God. There's nothing that's ever going to separate me from God. Preaching the gospel to yourself. This is, this is one of the first invitations that Paul brings about in this question. He says, think about these things and, and answer the question, what should I say to these things? How can I take the first 30 verses and develop the best sermons I'm ever gonna preach in my life and not be so worried about preaching them to other people, but be worried about preaching those sermons to my own heart and my own unbelief? What shall we say to these things? Then in question number two, Paul begins to answer it. Well, what should we say to these things? What can we say to these things? Here is Paul's first answer. What should we say to these things? Paul says, here's something you can say to these things. And it comes in the form of a question. Question number two, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? After thinking these things out, the things in Romans 8, verses 1 through 30, Paul is answering the question, well, what can we say? How can we preach Romans 8, 1 through 30 to our heart? Here's what we can say. Here's how we can preach it to our heart. If God is for us, who can be against us? You, I, you know, I just love this passage for so many reasons. One of the reasons is because inserted into that, that question is just a defiant hope. Just a hope that's unshakable. A, a hope that is unflappable. And let's just work out this question. Let's start here. What is Paul's point? What, what is he wanting you to know and me to know for us to feel as we read Romans chapter 8, verse 31? I think this is the point. We have talked about this for the last several weeks. Here's Paul's point in this question. Paul is reminding us that no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plan for you. That is what Paul is reminding us of here. This is what he's preaching to his heart. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. Paul is taking Romans 8, 28, that precious promise that God is gonna work all things out for good. If you love God, if you're called according to his purpose, God is going to work every, every single thing that passes into your life. God is going to bend that thing for good. He's taking that precious promise and Paul is just preaching it to himself. 
He's reminding his heart of that. He's rehearsing that precious promise so he doesn't forget it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He is reminding himself that no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by him or against him can block God's plans for Paul. Paul's reminding himself of that. Now, this is one of those texts where it's, all, it's just important that we make sure we connect that Paul is not writing abstractly. Paul is always using what I would just call pastoral logic. And pastoral logic goes like this. If I'm going to write something, I'm gonna write something to a group of people that I love to counteract and to address particular difficulties that they're experiencing. So Paul is not just writing Romans 8.31. He is writing it for the sake of people and for people who have particular difficulties. Now the question becomes, what is the difficulty that Paul is addressing? I think this would be the answer. What, what is Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? What, what is that meant to address and help? It's meant to address and help the fearful, the anxious, those who are right now wrapped up in a ball of worry, to those who feel beaten up and bruised by life. Maybe we could just say all of us, right? That's who it's meant, to, this is who this is meant for, the fearful. Those who are anxious, worried, beaten, bruised. You feel that right now. Like you came in with a limp this morning. Here's the great news. Paul wrote this for you. You, you just drug yourself in here because that's the only way you're gonna make it. Good news, Paul wrote this just for you to help you rehearse this in your own life so that you wouldn't forget this. Now, then comes the question, like, why is it that a person would feel these things? Why is it that we would feel beaten up and bruised? Why is it that we would feel fearful and worried and anxious in our life? What, why is that? Well, I think it's just important to look back at this question and to see that Paul's point is not that no one is against you. That is not his point. Paul is a realist. Paul knows that there is much against us. If you're a son or daughter of God, there are forces that have been amassed and they are on the border of your life and their cannons are always pointed at your life trying to kill and maim and destroy you. Paul knows that, that there are real things that are opposed to us. And then the question becomes, well, what sort of things are opposed to us? And this could be like a whole set of sermons in and of itself. We could start with Satan. The Bible tells us that there is a real being called Satan. He's an adversary of every son or daughter of God. He has pledged himself to be against God and against all of his people. He is a defeated foe, but he is a not yet destroyed foe. He is like one of those kamikaze pilots who is on a one-way mission to do as much damage as possible as he can to God, God's causes, and God's people. That is Satan, a real being that is against us, that is opposed to us. We could talk about our flesh. Our flesh is opposed to us. Flesh in the Bible is a way of talking about that part of us that's at war with God, that part of us that has been deformed and, de and distorted by sin, that that flesh is at war with us. Like right now, you, if you're alive right now and you're following Jesus, that, that flesh in you is dethroned in you when you became a Christian, but it's not yet destroyed in you. And so it kind of recedes into the jungles of your heart and it's constantly waging this guerrilla war in your life. Always looking for an inroad, always looking for a way to drag you down, always looking for a way to lure you into disobedience and distrust of God. That is always in you. Until Jesus comes back or you die, it's gonna be in us. It's a constant foe always opposing us. Isn't it humbling to think 
that we, when you just kind of boil it all down, we are really our own worst enemy. I mean, think about your own life. I mean, this is such a humbling thing for me to think of, especially when I wanna make other people the enemy. It's a humbling thing for me to consider that no one has let me down more than I've let me down. No one has wronged me more than I've wronged me. Like in a very real way, I, I am my own worst enemy. That the flesh that's still in me, that old man that's, that's destroyed, that you know, is dethroned but not yet destroyed, constantly waging that guerrilla war, it is opposing me every moment of every day. The list just keeps going. Death opposes us. De death is an enemy that is constantly knocking on every one of our doors. I mean, I just had a moment this last week where, uh, you know, Kevin Hill is walking through a, a cancer diagnosis and just the difficult road that comes along with that. And man, I just had this moment last week where I just felt that. I just woke up feeling like, what if I got a cancer diagnosis and God gave me like three or four years to live? What if God did that to me? And it wasn't just like a hypothetical question. It felt like God actually did that for a minute. I mean, can I just, in that moment, I felt so fearful. It was scary. And right underneath that, I, there was a part of me that was mad at God, angry at God. I mean, death is just that constant sort of enemy, always opposing, always, you know, lurking at our door. Um, how about sickness? Cancer is an enemy. Our bodies breaking up and breaking down, those can be enemies. Those can be things that are against us. People can be against us. Paul had people against us all throughout his ministry. He just tells us that's part of like what a normal common experience as a Christian is going to be is that some people are going to be against you because you're for Jesus. And because they're against Jesus, they're gonna be against you. I mean, I'm just thinking about that passage that uh, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul is pelted with stones to the point where they think he's dead. They drag him outside of the city and they just leave him to die. I mean, that's just kind of a normal day for Paul. Paul knows that people are against him. People can be against you too. When you get down to verse 37, Paul gives us the catalog of things that can be against us. Tribulation can be against us. Distress can be against us. Persecution can be against us. Famine can be against us. Nakedness can be against us. Danger can be against us. Sword can be against us. There is so much against us that if you are a sane person and all you see in your life is what is against you, you would be fearful and you should be fearful. I'm gonna say that again. There is so much against us that if you are a sane person and the only thing you see is what is against you, you should be really fearful, really anxious, and really worried. There's that much that is opposing us. Now, what is Paul doing here though? Paul is not saying, hey, I want you to stick your head in the sand and act like nothing's against you. That is not what Paul's doing. What Paul is doing is he is saying, yes, there is plenty against you. Everything, it seems like, can be against you. What Paul is doing in this passage is saying, I want you to lift your gaze up over what is against you, and I want you to lift it all the way up to God. That's what I want you to do. Because here is the truth. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who is against you. If God is for you, it doesn't matter if the rest of the world is against you. Do you see Paul's logic, logic here? He's saying, yes, there is so much against you. But if you'll stop looking and obsessing over what is against you, and if you'll look up at this God who is for you, it will free you from that fear. You won't walk around so worried and so anxious about your life. The emphasis is on this, if God is for us, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The emphasis is on those first five words. And let's just do some work on those first five words. 
If God is for us, first two words, if God. When you just heard that word God said, the thought that you immediately went to when you heard that word said is the most important thought you will ever think. What you think when you hear the word God is the most important thought you will ever think. It determines everything about your life now and everything about your life in the future. It is the most important thought you will ever think. So the question becomes, who is God? Who is God? Like when, when you think about God, what, what do you think? And, and maybe another really important question for us to consider is, where did your thought of God come from? How do you know you don't have a made up version of God? You know, isn't it scary to think that we all have a, a tendency to pull God down into our image? Like, like to start to shape God around what we want God to be and therefore we build our case that that's who God is? How do you know that when you think of God that you're thinking right thoughts of God? See, most people in our culture, what, what they do is they pull like from several different places to form their view of God. They pull a little bit from the Bible, a little bit from their family tradition, a little bit from kind of the cultural folklore that is God. And they kind of put all that together and that becomes their view of God. So, so how in the world can we keep that from being us? The only way you will not shape God into your own image is for you to read the Bible and to constantly ask God, show me who you say that you are. God, show me what you say about yourself and then help me believe what you say about yourself is the picture of who you are. That's the only way we'll ever be spared from making God in our own image. Now, it's interesting when, if you just kind of pick up and you start reading from Genesis chapter one and you just start reading forward, one of the first things that God says about himself comes in Genesis 17 verse one. And here's what God says about himself. I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Now think, God also uses pastoral logic. He's not just saying this kind of abstractly. He is saying this to people that he loves to help them in their particular difficulties. Now, what are the particular difficulties that he's addressing here? He is talking to, to Abraham and he's talking to Sarah. He's reminding um, him of the covenant that he's made with them. Now think about what has gone on in Genesis 17 in the life of Abraham and Sarah. God has come to Abraham, called him out of Ur. He, he's God and Abraham, and he's looked at Abraham and he's promised, I am gonna make a great nation out of you, Abraham. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna make a great, it's gonna, it's gonna be more numerous than the stars in the skies, Abraham. That's what I'm gonna do with you. But there's this problem. Abraham's life is messy and Abraham is old. And Abraham and Sarah can't have babies. They can't conceive because they're that old. And so Abraham is looking at the mess of his life and he sees the promise of God over here. I'm gonna make you a great nation. And then he looks at the reality and the impossibility of his life over here. I am too old to have kids, God, and we're childless. How, how is the great nation thing gonna work when we don't have a kid to have a nation from? How, how does this work, God? And Abraham did in that moment what we so often do when the promises of God over here seem impossible because of our life circumstances. He shrunk his view of God. You remember what happened? He said, you know what? There's no way God could do what he promised. So, so we're gonna have to do this for God. We're gonna have to shrink down this promise to what would be humanly manageable. So I'm gonna take Hagar and I'm going to, to have a baby with, with her, uh, Ishmael, and surely that's gonna be the way God fulfills his promise. And God comes to Abraham thinking like that, small thoughts of God. And he says, Abraham, let me remind you who I am. 
I am God Almighty. You don't have to shrink me down. When your life doesn't square with what I have promised, you don't have to shrink my promise to fit with what you can see. Abraham, I am God. I am God Almighty. I love what one commentator, Marcus Dodd, said about this moment in, in Genesis. When he's commenting on God's self-revelation of I am God Almighty. Marcus Dodd says this. Here's what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, I am the almighty God able to fulfill our highest hopes and accomplish for you the brightest ideal that ever my word set before you. Abraham, there is no need of paring down my promise. You don't have to do that. You don't have to pare down my promise until it squares with human possibilities, Abraham. No need of relinquishing one hope that my promise has begotten. There is no need of adopting some interpretation of my promise, which make, will make it seem easier to fulfill. There's no need of striving to fulfill my promise in any second rate way. Abraham, you don't have to do any of that. Why, Abraham? Here's the reason. It's because Abraham, all possibility lies in this. I am the almighty God. If God is for us. If God, almighty God is for us, you never have to look at your life and kind of shrink it down to what you can see. If God is for you, God almighty is for you, you never have to pare down the promises of God to kind of fit in with, with what you can see happening in your life. If God, almighty God is for us, who can be against us? If God, that's the first half of those first five words. And then the second half of those first five words. If God is for us, if God Almighty is for us. Now let's be clear here that God is not for everyone. We know that, right? There are many places that you can read in the Bible where God looks at people and says, I am not for you. I am against you. And if God being for us is the thing that unlocks all hope in our life, if God being for us is what allows us to look at all that opposes us and say, who cares if you oppose us? If God is against us, it does the exact opposite, doesn't it? If God is against us, it doesn't matter what or who is for us, we're doomed. So one of the things that we have to sort out here in this passage is that if, if God is for us, if, God is not for everyone, but contained in that if is an invitation from God. Do you want God to be for you? It's an invitation. Do you want to be in the category of people that God looks at and says, I'm not against you. I am for you. Do you want to be in that? This is an invitation from God to say, come on, come and get in this promise that I will be for you. Now, how do we do that? The Bible is clear. This is the way you get inside that promise we turn from all the sin that disqualifies us from God. And we have to turn away from all of our good works that we believe qualifies us to God. We turn away from all of those things and we then come with the empty hands of faith to Jesus. And we hold up our life and we say, God, here is my life. I'm gonna throw it on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Save me rescue me. And in that moment, God adopts us into his family. And God forever pledges that he will be for us forever. 
for all eternity, that God will be for us, that for all eternity, there will be no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by us or against us that can block God's plans for us. That's what God's promising. If you want that this morning, this is just an invitation from God. Come and get that. If there's never been a decisive moment of faith, where you've turned from the sin that disqualifies, the good works that you think qualify you, and you've thrown your life upon Jesus, that's never happened. There's never been that decisive moment. God just invites you this morning. This could be your moment for that, for you to go from God being against to God being for you, for you. And when you do that, it means it doesn't matter what is against us. See, when you're inside the promise of this verse, if God is for us, When you're inside that promise, you know what it does? God's sovereignty makes servants of everything. That's what it does. It means that everything that is against you will ultimately be for you. It means that the tragedy that you have, the cancer that you have, the sickness that you have, the breaking body that you have, the discouragement, you have all of these things that are against you. God's sovereignty is going to make them a servant. They're ultimately going to bow down at the feet of Jesus and Jesus is going to bend every one of those things to your eternal good. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now let's just finish by thinking through what this promise is meant to do to us, what it's meant to do for us. Promises like this take weak, failing, falling Christians and promises like this insert a defiant hope right inside their heart. They're still weak, but a promise like this makes them, even in their weakness, it makes them heroic. Let me just give you some examples of this. Do you remember Moses in the Bible? Moses has a big job from God. I'm gonna use you, Moses, to go set my people free. And do you remember how Moses responds to God? God, you've obviously got the wrong person. Do you know who I am? There is no way that is gonna happen through me. But do you remember what God says to Moses? Moses, I'll be with you, bro. Translated, I am gonna be for you, Moses. And do you know what that did to Moses? That allowed him to stand in front of the most powerful person on the planet at the time, Pharaoh, and look Pharaoh straight in the eye and say, even in Moses' weakness, for him to heroically say, let God's people go, Pharaoh, let them go. Do you remember um, King Hezekiah? The Assyrian army had come and surrounded the people of Israel and they are about to crush the people of Israel. And do you remember what Hezekiah says to his, uh, to, to his people? In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7 and 8, Hezekiah looks at his people and says, Be strong and courageous. Do not f- be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them. There's a vast army all around the people of, of Israel. And, and Hezekiah is like, you see that vast army? They're all against us. We're just a few people in here, but don't be afraid of that vast army. Now, why is that? Hezekiah, why should we not be afraid of them? He goes on to say this, for there are more with us than with him. How is that, Hezekiah? There are a few of us and thousands upon thousands of them. How are there more with us than with them? Answer, with them is the arm of flesh. They've got people on their side and a lot of them. With them is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. With us is God to help us and to fight our battles. And then I love what it says. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do you see that? See, this promise 
If God is for us, what can be against us? That promise is meant to insert confidence in every heart of the sons and daughters of God. Think about Joseph. Knowing God was for him allowed him to patiently endure the suffering, 13, 14 years of suffering. Think about Paul. Knowing that God was for him and that if God is for him, what could be against him allowed him to joyfully endure suffering all of his life. I love what J.I. Packer says just in conclusion of this question. He says, if you'll grasp this, grasp this, says Paul, if you'll hold on to this, to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you'll grasp it and hold on to it, let this certainty make its impact on you in relation to what you are up against at this very moment. I mean, whatever's against you, just name it and then put God on this side and compare them, he says. Just, just compare the two sides. And if you'll do that, he says, you'll find this, that knowing God is your sovereign protector, irrevocably committed to you in the covenant of grace, here's what it will do. It will free you from fear and it'll do this. It'll give you new strength for the fight. And who in here doesn't need a lot of that, amen? Let's pray together. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, and I just know enough of the stories in this room to be really confident that many of us walked in today really feeling like what is against us is the strongest thing in the universe right now. That what is opposing us is bigger than everything else. I mean, that, that is the thought that is underneath our worry. That's the thought that's underneath our anxiety. That's the thought that's underneath our fear that all of us in varying degrees brought in this morning. And if that's you and life is just beating you up and just bruising you and hurting you, and I, I wanna caution you not to judge too quickly. N not to judge this promise, if God is for us, who can be against us too quickly? If this morning you feel like the people who are against you are actually winning, don't, don't judge too quickly. I, I was just thinking last night, and this is gonna sound silly to a lot of us in here probably, but I was just thinking last night when I was a college and freshman, I was uh, dating this girl and I was convinced I was marrying her. And uh, about midway through that year, I found out that um, that girl that I thought was gonna, I was gonna marry uh, had another boyfriend. And I just remembered going home that night and just crying myself to sleep. I mean, it was terrible, terrible. And it so felt in that moment like, God, you are against me. And I would have had no idea looking back over that season of my life that that would have been the start of God really refreshing a new love of him. God, God really drawing me deeper into himself and God putting me back into the next year of college with a deep love of Jesus, a vibrant love of Jesus that's showing in my life now. And then all of a sudden walks in this other girl that's loving Jesus 
who just happens to be my wife. And I just say that just to make sure that we are not judging the Lord too quickly. If God is for us, who can be against us? For the first six years of Laura and I's marriage, we struggled with infertility. And man, I just remember the pain of just that weekly roller coaster of just, or that monthly roller coaster, just to be reminded every month that we cannot have kids. And I remember it feeling like, God, you must be against us. You've got to be against us. There's no way these things could be happening if you're not against us. Oh, just be careful not to judge the Lord too quickly. I would have never have dreamed that in that six-year season, God would have opened up Laura and I's heart for orphan care. Then one day we would plant a church that we didn't even know existed at the time. And one of the, the strands and themes of that church would be let's care for the orphan. And that because of that six-year season, I would get to see now in our church family dozens and dozens and dozens of families caring for orphans. Just don't judge the Lord too quickly. It reminds me of the old poet and hymn writer William Cooper when he said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. And that smiling face behind what may feel like a painful providence, painful circumstances in your life right now, is reminding us today that no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? So, oh God, would you take that truth and God, would you plant it deep in our soul? God, would you help us believe it this morning? God, would you help us own it? God, would you help us not to live below our privileges today? God, would you help us take that promise, plant our life on it and enjoy it? right now, in this moment, in this room. God, would you produce out of our weakness, heroic Christians? God, would you make us into that? And for those in the room who you're on the outside of the promise, today is your moment to, to take that decisive step. And if that's you, underneath your chair is a black card. It's a little uh, guest information card. Please, if that's you this morning, if God's working in you like that, take that card, fill that out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And man, we would so love to start the journey with you of walking with the Lord. So God, would you help us? And God, would you help us now to respond to you, to be able to sing back to you these precious promises. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.